We're talking chemistry and abiogenesis today with the chemist Lee Cronin from Glasgow. Next. Welcome to 5 O'Clock. I'm Theral Timpson. He's everyone's favorite chemist these days in the pink shirts, recently featured in Discovery Magazine and The New Scientist. Professor Lee Cronin is the Regis Chair of Chemistry in the School of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow, UK. Lee was the subject of a film entitled Inorganica, which documented the progress of his research in inorganic biology and the origins of life. He's also the CEO of a new company called Chemify. Your website says your group is motivated by the fascination for complex chemical systems and the desire to construct complex functional molecular architectures that are not based on biologically derived building blocks. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Uh, What does that mean, complex functional molecular architectures that are not based on biologically derived building blocks? Yeah, it's it's um, we're trying to work out how chemistry becomes complex or becomes, you know, like it's technological and autonomous. And right now we rely on a chain of events almost going back to Luca, the last universal common ancestor. And so I wanted, what I wanted to do for fun, if you like, or to try and understand the mechanism to get to complexity is to say, well, let's let's ban biology there's lots of people building nanotechnologies, but they're all bio nanotechnologies and they all go back to the ribosome and, and that event. And to say, how do we complexify from scratch? And it's almost a way of saying if we started again um, and we built or te- we allowed technology life to emerge on Earth, what would it look like? Could we would we have different things to the RNA and DNA and proteins we have now? Would there be different canonical bases and uh, and amino acids and so what i mean by inorganic isn't just it's not that carbon is banned we can allow there to be carbon i just want there to be no biological um uh, building blocks that have been invented already in biology but that's kind of a tall order but Mm. at least even articulating that as a as a possibility allows people to start thinking differently because of course even if even if you build complex chemistry you're doing it, and you're the invention of biology. So how can you separate those two um, effects? You mean you're, you're a biological organism who's doing it? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, this remote control for my, my monitor or my, even my, you know, my lovely periodic table mug, these are, these are all biological objects because they were made by biology indirectly via me as an abstracting human being or the person who made the cup, the person who made the technology. And so they don't arise by chance and uh, they have a, if there was no origin of life, there would be no, none of these objects I have on my table. Um, Have you learned anything about the origin of life from cancer? I haven't learned that much yet, but I want to learn more and I, I want to look into it more. I think the phenomena of normal cells becoming, well, immortal cells, if you like, um, is very interesting. And I wonder if the same type of search problem existed before at, or at the onset of the origin of life. Is, is, are, is that transition exploiting similar phenomena? Um, and is there mm-hmm. a parallel between the origin of life and the origin of cancer? And if we understand mechanistically how living things suddenly get going, do we understand how 
normal cells become cancerous. And I do think there's something deep there, but I do not have sufficient expertise or sufficient experimental design to do that yet. But my feeling is I would like to talk to experts in cancer and experts in origin of life or synthetic life when we start when we start to go from the transition of turning taking dead cells and turning them into living felt cells that can turn over i think we can learn a lot but we're right now we're just not able to do that as i as i mentioned earlier we do not know how to make a fully functioning self-replicating synthetic cell which is really annoying you know we should right if we were good reductionists or maybe reductionism is not enough. We need to know something else. Have you thought about death as well? Uh, I'm sure you have as well as the beginning of life. I mean, do you do you, do you think about this scientifically? Um, yeah, yeah. With regards yeah. to, op- I mean, it makes Sorry. sense, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in if you, in terms of a combinatorial explosion, if you don't have ceasing to exist so that's i suppose equivalent to death then you can't explore the space because you've only got a fixed amount of material so if you don't recycle you can't you just get you just get trapped in a in a in a non-very productive space so death in biology i mean i would say on death yeah death in biology is probably pretty important if resources are limited you don't have an infinite amount of phosphate right so let's remove the phosphate from one organism, take it back. You don't have an infinite amount of these amino acids. So recycle them, do more things with them. And I think that that's um, that is aided by the process of death in a constrained environment. Of course, if resources weren't constrained, probably you wouldn't need to die. If the universe was expanding at a rate that could cope with production and there was infinite material, then death is not needed. So death is one of these constants built into this selection process. So death is needed if you want to have a survival of the fittest. But if your universe is expanding and objects are moving away, then functionally they're moving away from another and not interacting is functional death. And so Mm -hmm. those objects that then interact and compete with one another or help one another um, to persist in time and to propagate, that's the type of selection you want. It's not just... I don't think death is an absolute requirement for evolution, which will merely make some evolutionary biologists kind of, kind of conf- not confused, just like what? But I, but it's a, it's effectively what we would call death. The there's op- there's this theory um, from folks like um, Aubrey de Grey, who we've had on this program, um, and you know he he his story goes something like this. You know, he was studying in Cambridge, and um, he was a bioinformatician. His wife was a biologist, and he would go to these biology get-togethers with her. And he soon discovered that everybody was studying disease categories, and no one was studying death. And he said, why is that? Um, you know, why, why wouldn't we be studying death? So then he set up an institute to do this. And his theory was, um, you know, evolution just had you know, just needed to get us to um, the age to raise our offspring. And uh, that was it. But there was no uh, there was no reason why we couldn't live longer. Theoretical oh. reason why we could. What, you, you, you would disagree with that. Yes, completely. So the problem is that, that I mean, I, I'm not I'm so I would. It seems so that so. 
I've heard his argument, Aubrey de Grey's argument, and incredibly simplistic and somewhat, I would not say misleading, but I will. So, you know, it's possible for you to, if you can, if you can create perpetual motion if you have enough time and resource. So what I mean, if you take a cell and grow it, a stem cell, and you can keep copying that, right? It's possible to keep copying that cell. But when that cell has any history associated with it, has any memory, has any remembering the environment, then the the development and aging go together. Development allows you to specialize, allows you to get information. And so the 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 more function you have, the more death you have to have. And so sadly for human beings, it's not possible for us to escape multicellular creatures. You cannot really expect escape that velocity. We might be able to do some really interesting things to prolong life. Um, and maybe that's where this, he's going with study of death. But I do think that, um, you know, studying death, studying disease is a play on word, words. Life doesn't exist uh, in that regard. So death doesn't exist. What exists is existence and persistence and maintenance of structure. So we understand regulation and dysregulation, maintenance and entropy. Then you can say, well, how do I minimize this and what tricks can I use? And it's possible that you might be able to do things. But I, you know, I don't want to pour cold water on uh, on on aging research because I think it's brilliant that we're trying to um, make humans healthier and you know have better outcomes for longer but i do think there's a fundamental limit and it's tied into the limits given to us by the bonds in biology because bonds break and no matter what you say bonds break and we can't and we can't replace the genome in every single cell in the body without restarting it's cheaper to start again and that's what nature does it's just our egos if we want to live forever, what we should do is make sure we can imprint our ego in the environment so that it imprints itself into the new cells that are coming. Gotcha. That's what Einstein did. That's what Newton did. We still talk about them today. I think we don't understand that these people didn't die because they never really existed, but they were certainly entities. I mean, it's like an assembly theory. It's really obvious. Einstein is low down here on the assembly tree for a special relativity, but up here where we're applying it, his ideas still live on. And therefore, you know, Nothing ever dies in that regard. As long as your memory is used by infrastructure, then you very much exist in the present. Let's talk aliens. You mentioned before that you do not um, see how there could be life like we know it, RNA, on other planets. Um, why is that? Say, explain that. Well, so the further you go from, so if we have a, so it's all about contingency, the number of chance events had to happen. I think if you find um, another Earth or Earth-like planet, so let's say we've got an Earth detector, we find a planet that's roughly the same zone, roughly the same temperature, roughly the same chemistry, and we are able to see that it's alive, let's say remotely, then I, I would bet there would be chemistry in life roughly like us. But would it be identical? It can't be, right? Because it's like saying you and I, let's say you and I are going to start to write a book we decide we're going to use the same paper, periodic table, the same way of writing bonds, right? It's like chemistry. And we'll use some of the same stuff like book length, you know, 300 pages, gravity. And we both have, see our, have our separate ways, go away for 4 billion years and just type our book. And we'll come back and the books will be similar in that we would rewrote them using the same chemistry or kind of the same chemical seed availability, but there'll be different words. And so for people to think they were going to be the same, if we, if our books were identical, 
like word for word, you'd be saying that's simply impossible. And so, um, and, and that's what I'm saying is so that I would say that if you see what I mean. Yeah. So here's how I follow you. Um, yes, the chemicals that make up RNA are the same in the universe. I mean, the laws of physics are the same. So that's the same. Um, but at what point does it diverge? And what you're saying is RNA is the words. And so that's what's different. Yeah, so I would say that there's probably RNA-like molecules on this other planet, right? It might be even incredibly similar. They might have some overlaps. But it wouldn't but be pop- RNA. You know, it's just going to be other uh, bases. Yeah. yeah, it will be different bases, different peptides. There's no, there's nothing magic about the molecules we use other than they work and they were selected in the past and they were selected for a reason in our geology on Earth. Right. Is there some kind of attractor? In chemical space that takes us to DNA and RNA and proteins, I don't. I've not seen any convincing information statistically that suggests that that's a feature. And if there is, I need to know where that attractor comes from. It can't be magic. There must be information associated with that attractor. That would be an interesting paper. I look forward to that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've also said advanced alien mathematics. Um, let's say we find the aliens. Advanced alien mathematics is going to be different from advanced human mathematics. I guess this is the same principle, just, you know, um, taken further um, to culture, alien culture. Now, it makes sense that alien culture is going to be completely different from human culture. But I don't understand why alien mathematics, this is the one thing that should be the same. And in fact, there was a, a, a philosopher in the 60s, Gadamer, um, who said there are two kinds of human knowledge. One kind of knowledge is very unique to us. It's our experience, experience knowledge. But there's mm-hmm. the other kind of knowledge, and he even used the example, if we met Martians, they would be able to understand this other kind of knowledge, and mathematics was one of his examples. So you are uh, disagreeing specifically with that. Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Um, it's again about the contingency. We might actually be able to talk to aliens in physics, blow bubbles because bubbles will probably exist everywhere and maybe fusion. But the problem is that we, we, the, the reason why philosophers can think in this way is they think about the platonic ideal. Hello, Mendel's pod audience. This is Gregor Mendel. In order to continue with independent, high quality content, we are turning to you, the audience for additional support. You've been listening to a free preview of today's show. To hear it in its entirety, please join me in my garden or upgrade to a paid subscription at mendelspod.com forward slash subscribe. There will always be some free shows, but we need your support. Thank you for sticking with us as we continue to probe the mystery. 